Welcome back to the Dirt Show. In all my mail, whether from Rumble or from YouTube, I always get dozens of requests for an explanation of all the art that I'm surrounded with. I'm constantly surrounding myself with art. And as you can see, this is uh, my office in Miami Beach, Florida, and it's filled with art and memorabilia and all kinds of stuff. And so um, I'm asked all the time to have a show occasionally about it. And I've done one from New York and it got very, very, very good responses. People really enjoyed it. I showed uh, my George Washington letter written by Alexander Hamilton. I showed my Lincoln pardons, all of that. Uh, I don't have that much uh, great memorabilia here in Florida, but I, I have enough to, I think, uh, make it uh, very, very uh, interesting. Most of the stuff that I have in Florida, I bought at flea markets. You know, the stuff I have in New York, I've gotten at auction, I've gone to stores. But in Florida, I go to flea markets. There's a flea market um, uh, in Miami Beach uh, that I go to all the time and buy stuff. And so a lot of the stuff you're going to see today is, is, is flea market stuff, stuff you could buy in flea markets. And it's amazing what you can find. Let me start with this amazing little picture of Thomas Jefferson with an autograph, an authentic autograph of Thomas Jefferson. Look at closely at him. He was a very young man. Uh, this was a steel copper engraving done of him while he was in Paris. Remember, he lived in Paris <clears throat> from 1784 to 1789, very controversially, with Sally Hemings, and um, he performed very important functions uh, <clears throat> in Paris. And um, he described them as the most, the happiest years of his life, the, the, the five years that he was there. So this is a very good reproduction of what he <clears throat> excuse me, actually look like. What makes this piece remarkable is that it was owned by his granddaughter for years and years and years and years. And his granddaughter had a very interesting name. His granddaughter's name was, <clears throat> excuse me, Mrs. Benjamin Franklin Randolph, um, uh, obviously from two very famous families. I don't think he was related to Benjamin Franklin, but um, <clears throat> the family gave the name of this great man to one of their children. And so this was owned by Benjamin Franklin and Mrs. Benjamin Franklin Randolph. And I found this in the flea market. And here is the tag for how much I paid for it. So you should know $295. I think I probably bargained them down to <clears throat> maybe $200. I'm not sure. But <clears throat> excuse me, I'm still having some <clears throat> after effects of COVID. So this was one of my treasures uh, that that I found here. There'll be others as well. But then I'll show you some things that I didn't get at flea markets. I'm going to lean over and, and get things and then you can uh, see. So this is one of my favorite pictures that was in the background. It's me throwing out, whoops, let's do it in less glare, throwing out the first ball um, 
at a Red Sox game. This was my practice before I did it. I was allowed on the field to make sure I didn't throw a bouncer. This was my 70th, my 75th birthday, nine years ago. And I threw a strike. I got it right down the middle and it was caught um, by uh, my friend and, uh, and, and, and fellow, fellow, um, fellow, uh, a Jewish sports person. He's the athlete. I'm the, um, I'm the, uh, just, just the, the fan. Um, <clears throat> and, um, it was caught by, um, by the, by the Brooklyn Dodger. I'm sorry. God, I'm, I'm going back nostalgically to the time of the Brooklyn uh, Dodgers, um, but it was uh, caught by um, not Sandy Koufax. I wish it had been caught by Sandy Koufax. Um, I had a dinner with Sandy Koufax for my 50th birthday, but this was caught by Kevin Euclid. And um, so I'm very proud of, of this particular picture. I don't know whether I can throw a strike today, but I did it back then, so that, that's not so bad. Um, this is an interesting photograph. This is a photograph of uh, the Oval Office, of uh, me um, having uh, a very serious conversation with President Obama about, um, about Iran. And it's signed very nicely. Alan, thanks for your friendships and counsel. Barack Obama, the only problem is that he didn't tell me the truth. Um, I, I, I sat there and he looked me in the eye and he said, uh, Alan, uh, you've known me for years. Of course, I know him as a student at Harvard. You know, I would never tell you anything that wasn't so. Um, um, I have Israel's back. I will never allow Iran to develop uh, nuclear weapons. We will always support Israel. And then Shortly thereafter, he signed a terrible, terrible agreement with Iran, which would have allowed them to develop uh, nuclear, nuclear weapons. This is something I got at the flea market, and it looks just like a couple of advertisements and a, and a postcard, and, and it is. But the reason it's so significant, it's an advertisement and postcards that advertised uh, hotels and residences in Miami Beach. And, um, and, and, and it all um, <clears throat> talked about, quote, we have frankly restricted clientele, that our frankly restricted clientele guard you against unwelcome intrusion. You know what that means? Jews, Catholics, African-Americans, that's what frankly restricted clientele and they advertise it frankly restricted clientele this is a, a postcard from the dallas hotel in miami restricted clientele restricted 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 and um and uh, all over miami beach all over miami and one of the worst villains was a very popular entertainer named arthur godfrey arthur godfrey owned a hotel that was one of the most quote restricted and uh restricted and it restricted it just said no jews allowed but they couldn't say that openly so they told their clientele it's restricted got that in the flea market this is interesting believe me i didn't get this in the flea market my son and i went to auschwitz and he um pulled down a piece of barbed wire 
And that's a piece of barbed wire, actually from Auschwitz, a piece of barbed wire that kept Jews and others, mostly Jews, confined. And then I juxtaposed it with a yellow Star of David that Jews had to wear in the cities, in Warsaw, in Bucharest, in Budapest, uh, anywhere there were Jews, even before they were sent to gas chambers in Germany, they had to wear this yellow star of David that had on it Yud. And so we wanted to have that as a, a memory, as a recollection of when Jews were singled out in that way. And by the way, the hotels that were restricted from Jews, that was after the Holocaust. That was after six million Jews were murdered. You still had hotels, Arthur Godfrey, in Miami Beach, saying no Jews allowed. Even though six million of you were killed in the Holocaust, we're not going to allow you to come in because we don't want to be upset or offended by the presence of Jews in a hotel. Oh, my God. That was the way it was back then. You know, people talk about us being a systematically racist country. We were. We were during the Jim Crow period when I applied to Wall Street firms. It was systematic racism. Uh, I was first in my class, editor-in-chief of the journal, Supreme Court law clerk. I didn't get a single job out of 32 jobs, and it wasn't because I didn't dress well, but because I wasn't smart enough. That was the way it worked in those days. Let me lean over and get some more things. This is a very personal thing. Um, when I was a kid, um, I used to read classic comics, always classic comics. And when I first got to college, um, my teacher, Miss Babybrook, in my first year of um, English literature, um, said to the class, um, I'm just curious, she said, what I'm encountering here in my class on literature, how many of you have read 100 novels? And six or seven students raised their hand. How many of you have read 50 novels? Another 10, 15 students read their hands. How many have read 25 novels? A few read their hands. How many 10? A few embarrassingly read their hands. And then she turned to me and said, Mr. Dershowitz, you didn't raise your hand. This is because you read 200 novels? And I said, no, Professor Babybrook, it's because I've never read a novel in my life. I said, I know the plots of 250 novels, but I've never read one. She said, how do you know the plots of 250 novels without having read one? I said, because I read every single one of the classic comics that I actually won a New York State scholarship. And the thing I did best on was literature because I knew, I not only knew the story of Ivanhoe, I knew what Ivanhoe looked like. Here he was, his picture. And of course, Ivanhoe, in Ivanhoe, there's this uh, beautiful, beautiful uh, Jewish woman, a Jewess named, I think, Rebecca. Yeah, she's on the cover. And so uh, I always remember my classic comics and my first love of my life, Rebecca the Jewess from the book Ivanhoe when I was probably 13 or 14 years old. So I had this hung up uh, as well. Uh, here's an interesting one. My wife and I went to see um, The Merchant of Venice on Broadway with uh, Al Pacino. And I've known Al for a while. We both had a common friend, went to a wedding with him. We flew back together. Um, and um, so we went backstage during the, um, uh, it was a, we saw him at a matinee on Saturday. And then it was about a three hour break. And then there was an evening performance. So we went backstage and schmoozed with him. 
And um, uh, Carolyn took this wonderful, wonderful picture of him, which we have hanging up. Uh, just, just did it on her cell phone. But it's a, it's a great picture of Pacino. And we were, I asked him a question. I said, is The Merchant of Venice an anti-Semitic play by Shakespeare, or is it a play about anti-Semitism? And you might imagine his answer. It depends on how it's played. <clears throat> and he played it as a play about anti-Semitism rather than an anti-Semitic play. That certainly is his right as an actor. I collect photography, too. And this was one of my favorite photographs of all time. This is women waiting to greet their husbands and lovers at the end of the Second World War. And they're climbing up the fence and they're being held up the fence by their Navy lovers, Navy husbands. You can imagine what it must have been like when the Second World War ended. And these were people who, if we had to invade the Japanese island, they'd probably all be dead. They anticipated hundreds of thousands of casualties. And of course, instead, we dropped the atomic bomb and their lives were saved at the expense of the lives of many, many Japanese civilians, a, a great moral dilemma. But I love this picture because it just shows what it meant to be coming home and how the, the young women reacted to seeing their men probably for the first time in three or four years and, and knowing for sure that they would be returning. Okay. This is just an interesting picture, <clears throat> part of my photography collection. It's a picture of uh, Elvis Presley in his underwear um, being given the eye exam for his recruitment into the uh, army. Uh, any of you who are old enough to remember how what a major story it was when Elvis Presley was recruited uh, into the army and, and, and went into the army. So. This is that great photograph. I don't know who took it, but it's a wonderful, wonderful photograph. And <clears throat> speaking of singers, this is a great picture, too, of the Beatles swimming in Miami Beach at a hotel just four blocks or five blocks north of where I have my apartment, and um, as probably some of you know, I helped to represent John Lennon in the only case I ever wish I had lost. Uh, John Lennon was um, subject to deportation by the Nixon administration, who didn't like his anti-war views, but they tried to get him um, <clears throat> deported on the ground that he had a marijuana conviction in England that he didn't report on his immigration paper. So I worked with a, a great lawyer named Leon Wildes, and, and we prevailed and, and won the case on behalf of, of John Lennon. I wish I had lost the case. If I had lost the case, he would have been deported and he might still be alive in London. When I ran into Yoko Ono once at an art auction, I told her that and she was furious at me. She said, no, I'm so glad you didn't get him deported. He had the best years of his life. He gave me a son and we were in love and you should never, never think that it was a bad thing to to have uh, his deportation order uh, rescinded. And so I, I was <clears throat> pleased to hear that. <clears throat> One more. One of my favorite flawed leaders, all leaders are flawed, but one of my favorite flawed leaders is um, Winston Churchill. Um, great, great, great man. 
And this is a handwritten letter um, by Winston Churchill, signed by him, um, which deals with uh, Palestine. Uh, he was very concerned about that. He was a Zionist. Uh, he believed in um, the right of the Jewish people to have a homeland, a state, uh, in what was then called Palestine, or the Jews called it Eretz Israel, Israel. And uh, this is a letter uh, about that. And you know, I collect letters and autographs. I collect everything. Uh, in fact, on my wall, you're not going to be able to see it very well here, but uh, on the wall, on the extreme, in the middle of the up um, there, in the middle of the up, there is a copy. It's not an original, obviously, a facsimile of the Balfour Declaration. Balfour Declaration, which is what the, the British government announced through Lord Balfour, who was then, I think, the foreign minister, that uh, his, his majesty's government views with favor the establishment of a Jewish homeland in Israel with equal rights for the Jews and the Arabs, et cetera, et cetera. So um, I love having that in my office, uh, in my office too. Um, you know, there's a lot of other stuff in the background. Uh, there's a letter in the back there saying, Dershowitz is not welcome here. This was in South Africa. Interestingly enough, it was not during the apartheid regime. It was in the post-apartheid regime. I was one of Nelson Mandela's lawyers. I tried to get an exchange of prisoners uh, for him. I worked with the ANC, the African National Congress, but um, never had any respect uh, for uh, Bishop Desmond Tutu, who was a, a bigot, a racist, and an anti-Semite. Um, he was also a great man. He did a lot of good things, uh, but he was an anti, virulent anti-Semite. And when I wrote an article about the greatness of Tutu, but his anti-Semitism, a group of strong anti-apartheid people who are on my side wrote um, uh, an op-ed to the local Johannesburg newspaper saying Dershowitz is not welcome here. And, and the University of Wits <clears throat> canceled my speech and wouldn't allow me to speak, saying there wasn't enough interest in my speech. And so we moved it to a few hundred yards down the block, and I got 1,400 people uh, coming uh, to my speech. Not enough interest, obviously. It was uh, all, all a fake. <clears throat> so these are some of my treasures. I have in the background a, uh, a wanted poster from John Dillinger. I have uh, oh, a great photograph of the Israeli Air Force flying over Auschwitz um, during one of the anniversaries, and if only the Air Force, there had been an Air Force that could have bombed Auschwitz, how, how different the world uh, would have been. So, you know, I collect memorabilia, I collect stuff, um, and I love flea markets, and I love auctions, and, and that's basically my hobby. I just bought a letter two days ago, um, a legal brief signed by Alexander Hamilton, when he was practicing law for a very, very short time that he practiced law. And it's written in his hand, signed just A.H., not Alexander Hamilton. I have some documents signed by Alexander Hamilton as, as well. And so I continue to do this. I continue to buy material and I continue to uh, trade material. I sell some material, but uh, um, I love collecting. I love feeling, feeling close to art. I love feeling close to history. And uh, so that's my house in Florida. 
Let's get back to some letters. I got so many, so many letters about gun control and I couldn't read them all in, in one day and I, I wouldn't try to read them all in one day. Um, here's one. Without guns, we would be like Canada, Australia and Great Britain, right? No, thanks, he says. Well, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with Canada? What's wrong with Australia? What's wrong with Great Britain? They're very similar to us in many ways, except they have far, 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 far fewer gun deaths and fewer mass shootings. They, they have some. There's no doubt about that. And if we disarmed all Americans, uh, that would not end murder. Britain has murders. They just don't use guns. Knives and they need to strangle people. And do other uh, I'm not suggesting anything is a panacea. Again, we, we tend to see these things in extremes. I'm just in favor of reasonable gun control, well regulated guns. Why do Democrats never ask what possesses these young men to commit mass murder in the first place? Immediately they resort to talking about guns. Now, the reason is very clear because Americans are no different from. Brits, no different from Canadians, no different from Australians. We don't have more mental illness. We're not more violent. We're not more prone to committing these kinds of crimes. It's just that when a person goes nuts in the United States and has a gun right nearby, it's more likely that he'll use it than he'll use a knife or uh, a piece of rope or anything else that's used to kill. So it's not that we blame uh we can't blame the people because the people are no different. Um, okay, stop blaming inanimate objects for the behavior of human beings. Again, I'm not blaming inanimate objects. I'm just saying when you have a gun lying there, it's going to be used. It was a Chekhov who wrote that when you hang a gun on the wall in the first act, you had better use it by the third act. And uh, um, that's the story of life, too. 99.99999% uh, of people who have guns don't use them uh, improperly. But uh, a lot of people who use their guns improperly uh, could have been stopped. And the death uh, could have been prevented with appropriate uh, gun regulations, perhaps. Professor Dershowitz, I would appreciate if you could explain the apparent contradictions in the opinions you hold. On the one hand, you hold up George Washington's letter about vaccination is evidence that it's okay for the government to mandate COVID vaccinations, claiming it would seem that if it was commonly done, that it must be okay. Uh, on the other hand, you give examples of outhouses saying that just because it was common doesn't mean that it's okay in order to justify taking firearms away from law-abiding citizens. So th that's not my point. My point about showing the Washington letter about inoculation is to show how long in our tradition, inoculations have been uh, accepted, but there's nothing necessarily in the Constitution about it. And just because there's a lot of guns doesn't mean it belongs in the Constitution. Yeah, Jefferson and Madison talked about guns, and they talked about how pervasive guns were. Uh, but that doesn't mean that it, it, it that the inclusion of the Second Amendment gives the power to to regulate, and you know, it's interesting because most conservatives want state regulation of things, for example, abortion. They want states to regulate abortion. But when it comes to guns, they will not allow states to regulate guns, and they should be allowed to because there's an enormous difference between gun violence in Manhattan and gun violence in Utah. 
And the easy availability of guns in one place doesn't mean it should be easily available in, in another place. So you'd think this is particularly appropriate for the states to regulate. And since well-regulated militias were well-regulated by the states, that presents at least a historic argument here. The problem is the direct result of liberalism. The destruction of religion, family, and morality has caused general psychosis throughout the country. This was put in place uh, to undermine the last defense, the Second Amendment of the American people by the left, in order to take complete control of our God-given rights of the people of the United States. First of all, whoever suggested that there is a God-given right to have a gun? You think Jesus was armed? Uh, Moses was an armed. Moses did kill somebody, but did it with his bare, with his bare hands. Um, so I'm going to state a statistic, and you tell me if you disagree with it. There is more gun violence among religious people than there is among secular people. If that's true, check it out. See if it's true. See who the people who gun violence are. See how many of them are, are, are religious. Um, and, and so then you can't say the destruction of religion, family, and morality, because the destruction of religion and morality has taken place to a much greater extent in Europe. Europe is a post-Christian society. America is not. Americans go to church in much larger numbers than Europeans, but Americans also kill in much larger numbers than Europeans. So you cannot create a correlation between positive aspects of religion and the lack of, um, of um, uh, prevention of guns. You want to stop mass shootings? Just get rid of the CIA and the FBI. They cause them all, right? Yeah. Again, whenever I see a CIA or an FBI agent, I always thank them for their service. Professor Dershowitz, it always seems to me that the Second Amendment, poorly written as it is, seems to imply that in order for states to have well-regulated militias, there needs to be a large number of armed people to call upon to serve in those militias. Yeah, but they don't have to be armed at home. They can be armed in the magazines. That's the way it used to be. There was a central place where when the militia call-up occurred by the bells in a church or whatever, the people would go to the armory or to the magazine and pick up their guns and then use them to defend themselves. So there's no necessary uh, correlation. Um, okay, bring back the Ten Commandments to school and then we'll see the end of violence. All right. Um, we, we, we see just as much violence in, in, in schools that do have the Ten Commandments and, and those that don't. So I, I don't think there's any correlation whatsoever between uh, religion, religious teaching, and, 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 and mass shootings. Again, I'm sure you'll disagree. Keep writing letters about this subject, any other subject. Be happy if I get letters about my collection. Uh, if any of you um, uh, want to have anything to say about that, I'd, I'd love to hear about that as well. Um, uh, see you soon.